What a great conversation with Mark today. I love his sincere desire to set people up for success and genuinely just want to make them better. I think the other thing that stands out with Mark is his discipline to process and that ability to stand strong in your principles and not compromise, even when the shiny allure of chasing outcomes can become very appealing. And that echoes multiple guests on this podcast so far. The importance of avoiding getting caught up in short-term noise and chasing results that might feel great today, but ultimately will impede our ability to perform tomorrow. It's a really important prism to judge your actions through and another reinforcement of that fact that your development tomorrow is what should dictate your thinking and actions today. And that's something that Mark clearly keeps front and center. Another point that resonated with me linked to the fact Mark is particularly renowned as an individual who has excelled at this is talent identification. It's clear speaking to him how important it is. And I think his sport as well, baseball, is one of the leaders in the domain when it comes to identifying talent and the professionalism of doing so in terms of the approach they take. There's obviously the famous example in terms of the film Moneyball, where Brad Pitt plays Billy Bean, who was the GM of the Oakland A's. And of course, Mark Shapiro is featured as a key character in that film. But that leads me to what I'd like to talk about today, Penguin. For me, talent identification is the bedrock of all elite organizations. In fact, if you don't get this right, I'd go as far to say that it's very hard to excel at all at the organizational level. So the million dollar or even billion dollar question is, how do you predict a superstar that isn't a superstar yet? Now in sport, coaches are on the constant lookout for the next Cristiano Ronaldo, LeBron James, Tom Brady to convert the team from aspirational contender into championship winner. And it's the same in business. Venture capitalists are constantly on the lookout for the entrepreneurs on the cusp of launching the next Facebook, Uber or Amazon. All over the world, in every field from academia to music, Thousands of hours are spent on identifying potential high performers. Many organizations spend millions to attract superstar talent, only to cough up even larger severance packages to get rid of their failures. It seems exceptionally difficult to spot future superstars in any profession. Each domain is going to have its own lingo, culture, and heritage, but the talent question is one that torments us all. Failures in talent are an absolute nightmare for so many of us, Getting it wrong leads to job losses, bankruptcy, relegation, plummeting share prices, and hundreds of millions of pounds flushed down the toilet. Whatever the domain, you all want to find the superstars before your rivals do. If you don't unearth LeBron James, Mark Zuckerberg, or J.K. Rowling, someone else will. Ultimately, you're looking for a competitive advantage. If you can identify talent more effectively than the competition, you increase the probability of producing winning results. Now, success is usually recognized at the organizational level, whether it be the inner workings of Google, SpaceX, or Goldman Sachs. But an organization is just a group of people pursuing a common goal, which is why an organization can only be as extraordinary as its people. Because people are so critical, Identifying retaining talent is possibly the biggest challenge any organization faces. One of the best chances of ensuring our organizations excel is to make sure you have the right people pursuing the right goals. Talent identification is basically venture capital. We're making an investment. It's about people, time, and money. 
we all have limited resources, whether it's salary caps, effort, management, coaches, squad space. We must apply a filter to decide how to spend those resources on the performers you think will be most successful. Fundamentally, it's a prediction problem. The objective is to learn to predict who's going to become a gold medal performer in their respective field. Outlier organizations already know this and expend infinitely more time, effort on screening for those future superstars. As Mark shared, talent identification pipelines must be created organically, not discovered nor outsourced to a sales team. And so many organizations pay millions to recruitment consultants who in reality aren't talent identification specialists. They're salespeople. The issue with hiring the wrong people is that you end up having to live with, fix, or fire them. And it's only a matter of time before other team members inevitably suffer by compensating for their teammates' deficiencies. One weak member results in a devastating reduction in overall performance as teammates are forced to mop up errors, divert attention from their primary role, and redo work. Most organizations spend 2% of the time, effort, and finances on talent identification and 80% managing their mistakes. A team's momentum is derived from all the members performing from a place of concordance within their roles. When you increase the quality of the talent you bring into the organization, you'll receive back tenfold in terms of safe time, money, management, morale, leadership, sick days, innovation, and most importantly, the spoils of superior performance. The overarching idea behind teamwork, full stop, is that the whole is worth more than the sum of its parts. Elite performers standing on the shoulders of each other, creating a compounding effect. That is what we're after. In almost every organization I've consulted with or worked in, I immediately see the colossal mismatch between what science knows about talent identification and the traditional manner in which most organizations approach it. So what are some concrete steps you can take to improve your ability to identify and retain concordant talent? Now, in order to introduce a step-by-step process to conducting world-class talent identification, you first need to understand the detriments of the traditional manner in which most people go wrong. There are some key limitations within the status quo when it comes to talent identification, starting with the belief that talent can be bought. This, for me, is limitation one. We like to think you can just budget in a ready-made superstar or just blink away all your problems. This is only possible if, one, you're rich and you don't mind sharing your riches. Two, you stay rich. And three, no one else gets richer than you. Even then, there are no guarantees the superstar will be concordant with your specific organization. And the research suggests that organizations in sport and business are absolutely abominable at this game. The reality is that it's not even an option for most organizations. Plus, constantly buying talent is not a real edge. It's a band-aid, magic pill, or silver bullet. Inevitably, the price of the silver bullet is inflated thanks to bidding wars, and it becomes a race to the bottom. Most poaching attempts are leveraged by the recipient to bargain for higher pay from their existing employer. Then you're held to ransom by established superstars. And inevitably, organizations with bigger budgets will win this game. And there will always be someone with deeper pockets ready to pounce. You can't beat homegrown talent, whether it's the New York Yankees core four or Manchester United's class of 92 or Julian Robertson's Tiger Cubs. The ability to generate homegrown talent is a key predictor of an organization's ability to excel. 
Limitation two, the smart and competent trap. The smart and competent trap is one of the ways organizations fool themselves by hiring people with enormous, but not the right talent. When not headhunting for superstars to poach, the traditional approach to talent identification includes an intense preoccupation with qualifications. In particular, the belief that those with good grades from highly ranked universities make the best performers. Likewise, a person's prior experience in a similar role is assumed to be a predictor of being a high performer in a new one. Many weight selection heavily on such drivers. The idea that smart people with good grades are a sure thing is a bad one. Those with good grades are often shunted into respected professions like medicine, finance, or law. Just because you've got the smarts does not mean you can perform in a role or that you should. These individuals have a set of strengths that will enable them to compete in most professions. However, being smart helps people to grind, cuff, or blag their way through, but not necessarily excel. Unless their interests and values also align with that specific role, they'll end up flat, minimum effective dose in everything, and dependent on external motivation to prompt them into action. They're reliant on carrots and sticks versus an internal compulsion to excel. Also, the risk is that you turn away a lot of potential elite performers whose concordance with the role was not reflected or ignited by academia. Likewise, being qualified is not necessarily predictive of superior performance. Just because a person did the same job somewhere else doesn't mean they should do it for the rest of their life or for this organization. The key point here is this. You can train competency in a certain role, but you can't train psychological firepower. Possessing the right competencies, qualifications, smarts, or experiences is not enough to achieve results unless the psychological factors are also right. The level of performance ultimately achieved is going to be proportionate to the performer's intrinsic fit with the role. This is what's going to ignite their psychological firepower and unlock the confidence, resilience, motivation, creativity we all know drive elite performance. Limitation three, superficial screening. In most organizations, screening tends to be haphazard and based on chaotic superficial scans instead of rigorous examination of a candidate's strengths, interests, and values in relation to the specific requirements of the role. CEOs and hiring managers commonly hand out jobs expecting elite performance without acquiring any evidence of the characteristics, the strengths, interests, and values that we know accurately predict elite performance. What's worse is these managers who've conducted superficial scans then have the audacity to moan about how their employees don't perform to the level they expect. Their natural next step is to implement leadership training, management workshops, team building, and morale boosters to motivate and appease weak talent identification. Instead, they should preemptively allocate the time and effort and thought required to screen and make sure they have the right people chasing the right goals in the first place. Limitation four, ego. Too many organizations complain about not having enough talent. Many talent identification programs are blinded by egotistical assumptions about how special or unique the role they are hiring for is. That's just an excuse. 
Talent is not your problem. It's your approach to finding talent that is your problem. The challenges of talent identification stem from a weak strategy, not a lack of talent. Talent exists everywhere. And it is the owner, CEO, or manager's responsibility to identify, develop, and retain it. I don't care if you're trying to identify potential Premier League footballers, surgeons, or pop idols. As we begin to map out what excellence looks like in terms of talent identification, you're going to start to see where your talent identification process is potentially leaking or breaking down. Limitation five, the interview problem. Interviews are a painful process you nearly all must go through at some time in your lives, whether it's giving them or receiving them. When Asked the question the interviewer has read in some manual called 50 questions to guarantee great hires. The candidate will usually respond with a classic uh, that they've read in how to ace interviews. What is your biggest weakness? The questioner will say, setting a trap by utilizing a cliche to find out how humble and honest you are. Well, I'm a bit of a perfectionist is sufficient evidence that the candidate has at least read how to ace interviews and turns the weakness into a positive is very often stock question upon stock question with stock answer after stock answer. Behind the scenes, it becomes a futile competition between hiring managers as to who can come up with the most creative curveball question. You can't spot superstars by sitting behind a desk chatting. In business, too many are hired based on talking a good game. Most talent identification consists of a chit-chat instead of a robust, repeatable, scientific methodology. The problem is that talking about performing is not performing. We can bullshit talking, but you can't bullshit doing. There are very few roles where the ability to interview well is causally related to superior job performance beyond the general ability to communicate. For me, this is where Ralph Waldo Emerson's famous quote, strikes home for me. What you do speaks so loudly that I cannot hear what you say. We have all at some point been forced to work with the individual who is incompetent and yet presumably smashed the interview before ending up a disaster in action. Likewise, you've almost certainly let gold slip through your fingers over the years. The person who was unconvincing in the interview, who turns out to be a wizard on the job. Unless the job is to be interviewed, why place so much isolated emphasis on one process? The transfer to on-the-job performance is so poorly linked to actual performance. So if interviews are useless and pretty much all the available evidence shows this to be true, why do we insist on using them? The answer is that we love a good story and interviews provide a more interesting and memorable narrative about candidates. The issue is these narratives are highly inaccurate and riddled with bias. We are really good at making up stories to confirm our own subjective and often used as first impressions. Plus, interviews are easy and they're the way it's always been done. It's much harder to do the thinking required to produce and operate an evidence-based talent identification process. So most don't bother, which is amazing for us. Limitation six, bias. I want you to imagine two police officers sat by the side of the motorway they're using their eyeballs to measure the speed of passing vehicles. He's going too fast, shouts one officer. No, he wasn't, says the other. It's absurd to think about ticketing drivers based on this approach, but it's done day in and day out during most screening processes. 
and perhaps this is the biggest obstacle with talent. We are riddled with biases about what drives success. Too many people use only their feelings, observations, judgments, and life experiences to evaluate candidates. And it's akin to the scene in Moneyball, which Mark was featured in during his time at the Cleveland Indians, where the head of talent spouts pearls of wisdom such as, ugly girlfriend means no confidence. It would be funny, except that this sort of thing is far too common. Bias has allowed smart, well-groomed, good-looking people with polished CVs who know the right people to hack the system, which is great for them. Our education system is designed to manufacture such people. Inevitably, they rat race their way to excellence that inevitably eludes them and the organizations they serve. There are a whole host of biases that make us awful at predicting future successes. There are four main culprits, though. The first one is natural talent bias. Here, you tend to grossly overestimate ability if you believe there are signs of natural talent, despite the fact that you all like to think that you prefer hardworking strivers, you'll genuinely opt for those you perceive to have natural gifts. Two is the recency effect. This describes how you place more weight on the last thing you saw, which is why rock stars always save the best song for last. And we leave thinking that the whole gig was great. In sport, the recency effect is rife after big tournaments, particularly World Cups. You'll see the player that played well for two or three games transfer for hundreds of millions. Three, the halo effect. Here, those who start strong are overestimated in the future. So for the performer who starts well, the impression is more likely to stick, even if performance subsequently drops off. Four, we have confirmation bias. This occurs when you look for proof especially when there isn't any, to confirm your first opinion on a matter. For example, in football, if the talent scout likes a player they're scouting and that player loses possession of the ball, the scout might describe the player as positive or adventurous for you know trying to unlock the defence. The scout that didn't favour that same player observing that same action would describe that behaviour as sloppy, irresponsible or greedy. To optimise talent identification, we must shift the pendulum from subjective, superficial, biased, good grades, big bench press, towards a more objective, evidence-based approach. We need tools, data, and facts to prove beyond all reasonable doubt that the individuals we're bringing into our organization possess the strengths, interests, and values required to excel in it. If you're asking someone to do something challenging for your organization, you need to take the time to ensure they align with and can internalize the meaningful rationale for giving their all when doing so. Archaic organizations that rely on interviews, subjective opinion, biases, and tick-the-box qualifications will be annihilated by the organization that uses the objective, concordance-focused, evidence-based approach that I'm going to talk to you about in our next session. The aim will be to unpack exactly what world-class talent identification looks like. I want to wrap up with saying a massive thank you to Mark. He's recognized as an iconic leader in baseball, but his ability is more broadly recognized across all elite sports, especially in North America. I'm so, so grateful to have him take the time out to speak with us. And Mark, I'll hopefully see you in Florida soon.